Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us to our Christchurch Wednesday night Bible study here in Jerusalem. And uh, not only Jerusalem, but all over the world. If I probably count the number of countries represented right now, you've probably got about eight uh, right here. And that just reminds us how big the kingdom of heaven really is. And that's absolutely fantastic. Now, the Holy Spirit is present with me. He's present with you. And we would like to acknowledge his presence uh, by welcoming him through prayer. So, Brother Neville, pray us in. Yes. Yes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your provision in so many ways. And Lord, now for this time, we pray, Lord, that you would meet us in our need and challenge us in our blind spots, Lord, that we may understand more about who you are and the treasures hidden in your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, a couple of weeks ago, we were uh, finishing off Leviticus 7, and I'm very sorry that uh, my internet crashed and died. But um, here is, a, I think, a summary from the notes that I took from our discussion. Leviticus 7. Having instructed the Levites in the altar service and the care of the eternal flame, Moses then reiterates the instructions for the sacrifices and the offerings. Now, many of these instructions have already appeared in chapter 5, although there are a few additional pieces of information provided here. Throughout this chapter, holiness is everywhere. The ritual is described as holy. The tabernacle where the ritual occurs is holy. The priest, the offering, and the worshiper are all described as being in a state of holiness. This should remind us that everything attached to the name of God, including the very name itself, is holy. Too often our secular world has influenced the church and we have forgotten the holiness of God. Yet we know that we are called to be a holy people before the Lord. Interestingly, fat as well as blood seems to be important to the Lord as part of the worship of God. Let's remember that at its essence, the rituals being performed in the tabernacle and later the temple are part of worship and need to be seen in that context. Literally, the Hebrew reads that it is the priest, not the sacrifice, that makes atonement. Atonement is also not the same thing as forgiveness. In the order of the ritual, atonement occurs before forgiveness. In the New Covenant, clearly laid out in the Epistle to the Hebrews, Jesus acts as both priest and sacrifice. In the ancient world, priests ate the food that was offered to the deities. The service of the tabernacle was no different. The Kohanim and the Leviim received a, a portion of the offering. They also received the skins of the animals as a form of payment to provide for their families. Paul, in a similar vein, instructs us to provide for our own shepherds and pastors. It should be noted that not all offerings were of animals. The majority of the Israelites would only be able to afford a grain offering, which was accepted in the place of an animal. Grain, obviously, does not contain blood, 
and begs us to re-examine our preconceived ideas concerning the ritual worship in the temple. We discuss the nature of the peace offerings, the Zebah Hashlamim, which are in the plural form. Peace offerings were from both the herd and or the grain. The poor also had the opportunity to bring a peace offering before the Lord. Why was the offering written in plural form? When one brings a peace offering, he or she affects the world in several ways. Peace goes between man to man and also between man to God. Peace is also established between earth and heaven. Jewish tradition holds that since the destruction of the temple, chaos has ruled the world because we can't offer peace offerings. Jesus instructs us in Matthew that we should make peace between our neighbors before we attempt to make peace between us and God. God values human relationships is very important. Woe to the church who only wants a relationship with God without a relationship to the people God came to save. Interestingly, the peace offerings could be consumed by the worshiper up to three days following the sacrifice. Free will offerings are also described in this chapter. Throughout history, people have dedicated their talents, works of art, buildings, money grants and endowments, and much more to the work of God and to the establishment of his kingdom. Throughout Leviticus, which is a calling, the worship of God, while demanded, is first and foremost to come from the heart of the worshiper. He or she partakes of the holiness of God, in which worship includes the eating and rejoicing in the presence of God. All right, so now we're going to go on to uh, consecrating Aaron and his sons for temple service. Okay, so it's a it's a thirty something thirty six verses. So very sorry, guys. Buckle up, close your eyes, open your ears. Let's listen to the words of the Lord and see if you can recognize something that you've always heard or, or notice something that you hadn't heard before. As the Lord consecrates uh, humans and much more. I'm reading from an ESV. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and he washed them with water. And he put the coat on him, and he tied the sash around his waist, and he clothed him with the robe, and he put the ephod on him, and he tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And then Moses took the anointing oil, and he anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it, and he consecrated them. 
And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times, and he anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head, and he anointed him to consecrate. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. And then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron's sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it and purified the altar. And he poured out the blood at the base of the altar and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the utensil, in, entrails and on the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat. And Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and, and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned up with fire outside the camp as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the heads and the pieces in the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. And then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it. And the, and the Moses took some of its blood and he put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And then he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. And then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver, the two kidneys, but their fat in the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer, and he placed them on the pieces of the fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and he waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. And then Moses took them with their hands and he burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and he waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord had commanded. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and there eat it and the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread that you shall burn up with fire you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you, as has been done today. The Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night, seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you will not, so that you do not die. 
for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all these things that the Lord commanded by Moses. What a big chapter there. All right, guys. So based on a literal reading, uh, we'll get into spiritual stuff a little bit later, but come on, guys, on a literal reading, what is there that jumps out or stands out for you? This translation refers to an ordination offering. I wonder, I haven't read that in other translations. I can't remember what it was in the older versions, like the RSV or the King James. Yeah, I, 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 I noticed that as a first time too. I was like, I wonder what this means, an ordination offering. My seven days that they had to stay was the first time I heard that. Seven days and seven nights they had to stay before the Lord. Isn't it like a consecration? The whole thing is a, is a, is a consecration. Yeah. Ordination, consecration. Is consecration, it? yes. It's setting a clock, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, and, and I found interesting is that it's not just humans that get atoned. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Everything gets atoned. The, the altar gets atoned, the tabernacle gets atoned, the ground gets atoned. You're like, oh, my gosh, what, what, what is going on? There is a difference between the word atonement and forgiveness, and I think we will need, eventually we will need to explore that a little bit, a little bit more because we're seeing that um, inanimate objects are now being atoned. But, but am I right? Once it's a tone consecrated, it becomes holy. I assume so. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's why it took seven days. He had to anoint and sanctify every single thing that was at the tabernacle. And, you know, and the number seven, as we have previously studied on Monday, means perfection. So everything takes seven days, always. Hey, you've got a hand up? Yeah, the, um, the, the, the two words, atonement, which you've used, I, I've, I've got the, well, the one I'm reading is the New King James, and that is called reconciliation in the New King James Version. And the word ordination is called consecration, which okay. we've just heard. So we've got reconciliation and consecration instead of atonement and ordination. All right. So that, so that meaning the same thing. Hukta uh, Shah, I don't think. Actually, yes, it does. Hukta Shah in Hebrew, Hukta Shah consecration would mean ordination. Um, and there wasn't a word for atonement, so wasn't atonement was a word made to fit the Bible. Yes, lekaper is the word in Hebrew, and we make it. You know, we translate it as atonement because it literally means to cover. Reconciliation is what I've got in my Bible. That it was an interesting because it's I understood it both ways really. It and it reads the same, I think. Okay, so I'll have a little look at those words. All right, Sharon. I was wondering what that means in verse seven. It's an interesting phrase. Uh, with it, he tied the ephod on him. I'm not sure what it says in in the original Hebrew, but what exactly is the ephod? It'd be nice to have some clarification on that. All right. Well. Uh, Mordecai, do you have the nice picture of... Um, yeah, one, one second. Okay, because um, uh, I asked Mordecai if he could get some really cool pictures from the from his uh, Jewish sources of what these things actually look like. Um, I'm sure Neville's sort of sitting there right now going, I'm so glad that during my ordination no one sprinkled me with blood because that would have been, um, A, really embarrassing. And um, Did he wear an ephod? 
He no, he did. He wore a stole and a and a, and, a, and, a, and a gown. Can everybody see it? Yeah. The the guy on the left is an ordinary Cohen, and the guy on the right is the Cohen Gadol. So there was a difference between an ordinary Cohen's garment and the Cohen Gadol's garment. And some traditions in in uh, the Christian world continue this practice of wearing different things to signify a different rank within the people who are attending the service. So the way the way we do it as Anglicans, and so do Catholics and Greeks and a few other the other traditions, Lutherans, um, we have a thing called a stole, and the way you wear it, it signifies to the community your sort of position vis-a-vis. Um, what you do in the service and uh, and, and where you are in the, the, the hierarchy of um, of the community. Um, something that we actually inherit actually from uh, um, the Jewish people. And what you're traditionally supposed to do, I don't know if you know this, but um, just like when Jewish people put their talit on, they say a prayer and they kiss their little talit and they, and they wear it, um, priests and deacons are supposed to do the same thing with their stoles. Um, it's 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 sometimes sometimes I have to I know, admit sometimes I forget okay but where you're supposed to you're supposed to stop for a brief moment and remember what it is you're actually doing when you're when you're getting dressed for service okay uh, Vida Vida or David I've, I've got a question it's if we know that with Aaron being the high priest which is the top of the Levitical priesthood we can see that. Moses actually is higher because he's the one ultimately doing this consecration for the Lord on behalf, you know, to to apply the Lord's will. So, in a sense, Moses is even higher than this high priest. Uh, he yeah, was the high priest for seven days, actually. That was it. Yep. Yeah, so what? 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 He, so Moses acts as the as the chief priest, higher than everybody else, for a brief moment. In time, and he consecrates absolutely everybody. He does all the work, and uh, and so I get what you're saying, Vida. Spiritually, theologically, for it, it's interesting to see that Moses was higher than his brother, because then after this, he stops, but he doesn't do any more of this again. Uh, Aaron Aaron takes over and begins doing the thing, and Moses Moses does some other stuff. Teresa. As you know, I was brought up in the Catholic Church, and uh, I'm not there now, but I remember from my childhood, the priest would pray over every single object that he put on, you know, all the, the different vestments, he would, he would have to say a prayer. I don't remember any more than that. And the other thing is the idea of consecration of objects and consecration of the altar and all of that stuff. That was all there. It's very familiar to me if I think of my past and think of, it. you know, that's what they were doing, that kind of stuff, very similar sorts of stuff that they must have got from Leviticus, I assume. I don't know. Could be. We used to have a, an Armenian brother. Uh, you probably remember him, Vida and David, Bob. Remember Bob who could actually tell you the size of your feet just by looking at you and he would get it right? Um, very interesting uh, gentleman. Um, Bob, a, a lovely believer, would come to church and uh, before the service, and he would go to every chair that's in Christ Church, and he would pray, and he would pray, whoever sits in this chair, you know, may they be blessed. 
whoever sits in this chair, may they, may they hear from the Lord today. You know, and that, that's all he would do. Right? He would just go from chair to chair, and that would be his little piece of ministry. He wouldn't do anything else in the service or anything else, wouldn't do anything else for the church at all. But that wasn't the point, apart from telling you how good his train set was. But he would pray over every single little chair. And just for that brief moment, you know, he would consecrate those chairs specifically uh, uh, for the Lord that day. And who knows what effect that had uh, in the heavenlies and people who sat in that chair. And the, the enemy who would try to stop their ears couldn't stop them and they were opened for that brief moment. Who knows? So we will, we will know when we, when we meet these guys uh, in heaven. Okay. So, uh, Avida, you've got, or David has another hand. It's me, Aaron. Uh, I'm just curious. Could you explain a bit more about why we put a bit of blood on the ear and the thumbs and the right hand? And what's, what's the idea of that? Actually, I. Uh, no, I don't. Um, it, Mordecai and I had a, we, we studied this together on Monday and we had lots, lots of thoughts uh, all went in all kinds of directions. Why is this? Why does this occur? And um, um, why this only on the right side? I mean, the left handeds not get any, any say here. Um, you know, what's, 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 what, what's the, what's the deal? But, we can, we can try and explore it a little, but it is interesting that these things pop up. But just on a literal reading, when I read the chapter, I sat back and thought, wow, look at this. Lots of things get atoned for. Clothing, the, the tabernacle, the altar, the ground, the utensils, not just humans. So God is concerned with all aspects of his creation, even the things that we bring to worship the Lord have a, a, an aspect of holiness and or profaneness about them. And, uh, and then, of course, there was this long description about with robes and ephods and crowns and things, and that made me think, um, uh, being in Israel, obviously, uh, we probably would get this anywhere, really, but um, sometimes we, we wear robes at Christchurch, not, not a common thing, but sometimes we do particularly during holy days, and because we're in a, a period of holy time, Advent and Christmas, we're wearing robes all the time. And this usually gives a shock to most of our worshippers who are not from traditional churches. And they kind of look at us and they go, uh, why, why do you wear what you wear? And um, my usual response is, well, if you can tell me according to the Bible what I'm supposed to wear, I'll wear it. Uh, you, you, find, you find the verse that says I have to wear a three-piece suit and a tie, I'll wear it. You find the verse that tells me I wear blue jeans and a Hawaiian T-shirt, I'm all yours. You know, um, there, there isn't one. Okay? All, all you do find in the text is that God, when he wants to dress up his priests, those that are going to serve before him, he dresses them up and uh, he really goes the... He really good. He's got a, a nice way of making his his um, his shepherds look a certain way. And like any uniform, a uniform changes your behavior, and it also changes the behavior of the people that see them. So if there's a policeman who's not wearing his uniform and he's walking alongside of you, you don't act the same way as if he puts his uniform on and he walks right next to you. You act in a certain way. And so for most of us, if we wear our collars 
and we walk into a shop, they treat you a different way than if you didn't. So, um, but it also means we're on display a little bit more. So clothing, clothing is quite important. So it's got a role as a function. Uh, it's not something that we should dismiss lightly, I think. Nigeria, Shimshon, got a hand raised. I just want to make a comment on the, um, the ear, right thumb, and the big toe. Yep. Um, traditionally, here um, is, is we, yeah, I mean, it's, not, it's, a, it's a regular teaching that um, they're consecrating them and separating them to hear from God for the ear that's, um, that you hear from God. Okay. Then the hand that you will serve God, you will do the things of God. And the, the, the big tool is that they are consecrating it to walk the walk of God. Um, he, he can only walk to where God wants him to walk to and do what God wants him to do. Um, if we look at the whole idea of consecration, it says that, and they become holy. Holy, the word kadosh, that's translated holy, we understand it as to be set apart. So they're setting apart all these um, features of this man for a particular purpose. That's what makes it holy, to hear from God, to do the work of God, and to walk the work of God. Sounds good. And uh, Aaron, that's a really good thought that like you, these are clothes that they're wearing in the tabernacle, yeah. meeting God. So you're meeting God in his holiness. It's not just kind of walking around on the street in this passage, right? Uh, I have no idea um, what they did on the outside. Um, I, um, I, I, all I can say is that if, if they had have walked outside the camp in their holy clothing, people would have treated them differently. That's that's for sure. i got to tell you, when I was in uh, Jerusalem for, not when I was in Jerusalem, I am in Jerusalem. During Easter, Holy Week, uh, we have a tradition where on Monday, Thursday, we, we, we gather on Thursday evening, we have a service, and then we walk to the Mount of Olives, where we then sit halfway up the Mount of Olives in a Russian convent overlooking Jerusalem in an olive grove, and we try and pray, just as like Jesus had asked his disciples to watch and pray. We try and watch over the city and pray. And we all notice that within five minutes, we all start talking to each other, and then we are reminded, stop talking, watch and pray. And we do well for about five minutes, and then we start chatting again, and it, the cycle continues. Um, normally, after the service, David and I take our robes off and lead the people looking like normal people. Well, one day I got busy talking to somebody, I can't remember who it was, and I didn't take my robes off. And the group started leaving. And I was like, uh oh, I'll just follow them along. So I'm walking around Jerusalem, decked out in all my robes. Okay, not the probably the smartest thing to do. But I gotta tell you this, every time I walked past anybody through the Christian quarter, they all came out and went, Abuna, Abuna, you know, priest, priest. And they gave me hugs, wished me a good time, and they gave me a kiss on each cheek. And if uh, you ever want to have a real boost to your ego, just walk around Jerusalem dressed like a priest. It's incredible. (laughs) I think it's Syriac because in Mardin, the Syriac community calls the priest Abuna. Do they? Yeah. Like our father or something like that, like Abinu. Avenu, Nachon, that's right, that's what it means. Okay, yeah, Andrew from, from South Africa, you've got a hand raised. Just a brief comment from Africa as well. Uh, I'm all for special garments on special occasions, really like the idea. But just the thought, as you were saying it, uh, our behavior shouldn't change when we come across a policeman in uniform. A policeman shouldn't be guiding our behavior. Just no, it shouldn't. The point was it does. That's that's yeah. So you're right. You you absolutely you should drive your car 
uh, obeying all the rules, not just because there's a policeman with his flashing lights driving right next to you. But uh, that, that's, that's absolutely true, Andrew. The point was, when you see them, you change your behaviour. And conversely, when they're wearing their uniforms, you're kind of hoping that their behaviour is different as well. All right, so um, Teresa, yeah, a few more I comments just, and then we'll begin looking at the text. You know, Aaron, I think you know Canon Andrew White, who was the vicar of Baghdad and also done yeah. a lot of peace work. Well, he was, he, he was called in Iraq Abuna. He would talk about that, meaning sort of father. But he, um, he said that when he was doing peace work, when he was dealing with these people who were high up in Islam, that the important thing for him was to wear his clerical clothes. And that, that actually was really important because it gave him the right kind of identity to be yeah. able to deal with them. So I just wanted to make that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, that, that's true. And several times um, for, for myself, whenever I have to go to a meeting, um, I usually just wear normal clothing. But every now and again, if there's a meeting that has to be um, where it could be a bit contentious or a bit uh, where it's a bit more serious, I'll, I'll wear, I'll wear um, my full clothing and I'll walk in and I'll say, look, my name is Reverend Aaron, please. That's what you'll address me or Father Imey, your choice. And, uh, <laughs> um, and people say, oh, oh, okay, you've got something serious going on. Um, but it's, it's a little, it's not rare. Okay, um, Shimshon, you've got a hand raised. Yes, um, just to um, add to the to the to the dressing of the priest in Exodus um, twenty-eight verse two, it kind of tells us why. It okay. says, "Make holy garments for your brother Aaron to give him glory and splendor." So the whole idea for the garment to look different is glory and splendor. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Thanks, Shimshon. Okay, so we have, yes. um, and and I always find it interesting. You know, Africans always look absolutely fantastic in their clothing. Yep. Um, uh, so it doesn't matter what priests can wear. You know, once once we've got a, a congregation of Africans, they all look better than you do. Yvonne, and then we will begin studying the text. Okay. <laughs> Exodus chapter forty. Um, even though Aaron had those those garments, um, yes. he didn't play any. He didn't he didn't participate in in, in the dedication in, at the end of Exodus. So, so the question is, even after the whole thing about the golden calf, would he still be consecrated and be allowed to work? So it's interesting that even after that, his ordination continued, and we that you know like like Peter also the rejection, and then was still able to continue the work as a disciple and. I was in a Bible study yesterday with uh, two days ago with a friend, Jen, and we were studying that same topic and it was cool, but it, we were talking about Peter and it was really interesting to observe, like Peter had such great faith and was very passionate, like outgoing guy, right? And then at other times, like at one point, Jesus had to say to him based on what he was saying, uh, get thee behind me, Satan. So it's just so interesting that we're surrendered to God and his will and his spirit, then we can be used by God. But then sometimes we can even be like, hand servants or whatever like tools of satan or you know used to bring non-truth or you know not good things to our environment or whatever based mm -hmm. on our behavior and we can flip back and forth it's just interesting observation yeah. about that when our heroes fall and most heroes do because we are human um when are we allowed to pick ourselves up and and, and when can we continue it's not always an easy one to answer um, obviously, we can look at examples like King David, who did horrible stuff and, uh, and yet was allowed to be a king. Aaron, 
engaged in idolatry and, uh, and was allowed to be the high priest. And uh, others offered false fire once and were consumed by the law. Others mm-hmm. challenged Moses and were swallowed by the earth. We, when, 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 does, when is compassion given and when is, when is judgment uh, petered out? Those are very tough questions, and I don't know if we actually have the answers. Well, well, we immediately, you know, repent as soon as we're aware of it, right? Like in Psalm Sure. Yeah. Okay. Right. But exactly when, what do we then allow that person next to do? Like, let's just say that uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, um, who murdered all those people, repents. And he, and, um, you know, we're not going to make him the youth pastor and send our children on a youth camp with him. That's just not going to happen. Um, there are, you know, there are things that you do and things that you don't do. And it's not, a, not an easy question to answer is what I'm saying. And I do, I personally don't have the answer other than the mercy of God is, is larger than the mercy you and I have. Thanks be to God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and his, his judgment um, is pure and perfect. And as James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, let's now turn to the text and see what we can learn. Um, although the discussion has been quite good um, already. And uh, here we go. So looking at the first couple of verses, the Lord says to Moses, and we take our friend Aaron and the sons, and then we collect the garments, anointing oil, a bull and a couple of rams, plus bread. And then we assemble the whole congregation at the intent of meeting. Is that possible? No, it is not. Yes, absolutely right. It is not possible to get the entire congregation of Israel into the tent of meeting. All right, it's just not. So we're learning something about language. So what do, you, what is the, what do they say, Mordecai? What's the tradition? Well, according to Rabbi Ibn Ben Ezra, he says the assembly consisted only of the tribal heads and the elders, Zakanim, because there were about, I mean, not about 600,000 males between the ages 20 and 60, and the entire assembly consisted of several million people. And it wasn't very possible to fit several million people in, a, in such a small area. So what they mean is the, basically the Zakanim and the head of the tribal leaders. So. There you go. So therefore, we have now learned an incredible interesting principle. All does not mean all. all. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> what, we do, what we do sometimes is we read the word all and we go, oh, my gosh, that means 100%. No, it does not. No, 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 it's not. It does not. And, um, and, and that, makes, that makes a few verses in the New Testament actually a bit more clearer when you think about it. Okay, so interesting, interesting point that is just demonstrated here through the text. Okay, uh, so Moses does as the Lord commands. Everyone gathers. They're probably all kind of wondering. I wonder what Moshe is going to do. Like, uh, like, what is he going to say something? Is he going to announce something? Um, and actually, what he does is he goes through a ritual in front of everybody, which is very interesting. Doesn't ask anybody else to participate. It's just him and what he is doing in front of everyone. Uh, He begins by announcing, this is the thing the Lord has commanded. Uh, I'm not making this up. I'm actually also a servant of the Lord. In fact, in Hebrew, he's called Isha Elohim, the man of God. And he's he's acting out um, what what God has commanded him to do. Okay, Uh, we've got uh, Nigeria, Shushan. Um, 
but the kind of the translation says that um, in the entrance of the tent of meeting, um, it didn't say in the tent of meeting. And uh, I just look at the Hebrew and they say patak. And so um, could it be they were just standing in the front of the tent yeah. um, at the entrance and not really inside the tent itself? Absolutely. And even if you went down the line that one million people tried to stand in front of a doorway, the people, most people, 990,000, etc., just not going to be able to see. It's just not physically possible. And, um, and so the majority of people, even if you were standing there, would have not got a clue what Moshe was doing. Right? By the time you did whispers to say he's dipping the guy's, he's dipping blood on the guy's right ear, okay, by the time you go all the way back to the little Jewish guy right at the end, he goes, he's sticking his nose where? You know, like uh, the Chinese whispers would have gone crazy. I'm writing that down. That's going to make some really interesting Bible. <laughs> uh, it, uh, but I'm sure what happened was the, the elders did it and then they would communicate. And that's actually what Yeshua, Jesus, does with us. He gathers his um, inner core, he teaches them, and he expects them to then go out, which is exactly the model we're doing, or it should be, I think. Well, now that he's gone, but he also taught multitudes too at the same time. Yes, he did. And, um, and, and what do we know that those communities did? Like he gave a big lecture in Caesarea and, or wherever, and we hear nothing about somebody going, oh, my gosh, I heard this one sermon from Jesus changed my life and I went and planted a church in Turkey. You know, um, we, we don't get that at all. We, we get the stories of the, the inner, inner. Well, but then they all flocked to him to be healed, like on mass, all over. Yes, yes, and people got healed, but it doesn't say they got saved either. They already believed in God. That's why they're there. And um, and now they got healed, but it doesn't mean they turned around and said, okay, I can't wait for the New Testament. Um, yeah, be, we have to be very careful that just because somebody got healed, don't translate physical healing into a spiritual healing. There's a difference. But some happen. It happened with some, but not others. I mean, it's a big jump. Who knows, right? Yes, I mean, it's, it's a awesome. big jump. That's right. Yeah. When, okay. Sorry, can I interrupt? The, when Lord Jesus spoke in one place, there were 5,000 men just by themselves, plus who else was there. So he must have had a whole crowd that he was talking to at that point. Yeah, At that point, absolutely. Not saying he didn't do big crowd meetings or that he did small meetings or that he did dinners or any of that kind of stuff. The, 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 the thing I'm saying is that he didn't turn around to the crowd as part of his teaching and say, now you guys go out and start, you know, head off to Syria and start teaching. That, 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 that command stays within a small group of people. Okay. At the, the, at the, end, the, at well, the end of his earthly ministry, at the end of John, you know, then he commissions and says, go and make disciples. Yes, but it's people. not like thousands and thousands and thousands. We're talking about hundreds now. Okay. So, Multi? Yeah, uh, we are on verse 5 right now, right? Correct, yes. I would like to say about the, you know, this This is the thing stuff. The Moshe Rabbeinu said that this is the things you will see me doing before you have all been commanded to me by God and do not say that I'm doing them for my honor or for my brother's honor. I am. I was given this commandment to do that. So so important because we don't see it 
very often in the Bible uh, in this clear grammar. You know, this is the thing. I mean, okay, yeah, no, good point. Uh, Shimshon? Yes, um, just to um, uh, put the fact to Sharon that um, so many places Yeshua spoke, but um, the, the crowd was not really. Um, he wasn't so much impressed by the crowd. If you go to John 2, and in verse um, 23 and 24, it says that while Jesus was in Jerusalem as Passover feast, many people saw the signs he was doing and believed in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them, for he knew them all. You know, that makes us to know that Jesus wasn't so much moved by the crowd. No, Aaron had just made the comment that he was doing that from the beginning, but he had an earthly ministry as well. And then he commissioned the disciples and everyone. Later in the next three centuries, you know, Christianity spread all over the, you know, European, then world, you know, then known world kind of thing, right? I think what Shimshon is saying and is referring to, and is is true, the crowd doesn't impress the Messiah. He's, um, we, we often are impacted by numbers. It, it's us, you know, we're going, you know, how big was your church? How big was your rally? How many people got baptized? And we're talking, we think numbers, numbers, numbers. But actually, what we're really trying to get down to is who's actually really believing? Who's serious about the Lord? You know, the Lord cares for one person. He cares for 100, of course, but he cares for the, the one sheep that really, really, really needed to uh, repent. Roddy, you got a hand raised. Yeah, I think we should look to the uh, Exodus as another pattern. Anyone who put the door, the blood on the door, they were they were saved from physical death, but they were only redeemed. It's not until they actually believe in God, even after they hear his voice, they actually see him, the fire and the cloud. Only those who truly believe later on that are saved for eternity. So we see this pattern all the way going back to Exodus. And I'm sure if I think about it, it will be before then also. So you had the masses, these numbers, as you're talking about the numbers, right? Who are saved by the blood, actually saved for eternal life, and don't believe. Sure. Yeah. Right. The see, seeing a miracle isn't the same as being actually have a living and dynamic and saving faith. People see miracles all the time and don't don't actually uh, believe in anything. Yeah, because the crowd, the same crowd that was, you know, so excited to be with him later, they said these words are so, they're just too difficult for us to, to follow, and they abandoned, so. Some did, that's right. Yeah, they did. Never yeah. Mm-hmm. Brother Neville. And, and in another place, it says, many are called, but few are chosen. Oh, very good point. Yes, many are called. Yeah, I, I, I sometimes appreciate some of the liturgy where, because it's actually biblical, where Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And during Jesus' ministry, he did commission like the 72 and stuff. But I was just, you were just saying that he he was doing that. I thought you were saying that he was doing that from the outset, but he he did it more at the end when I thought, I thought that he he builds. He's he's, he's the Lord. He's very intelligent. Okay. So let's go to that text, verse six. Because now that Moses has got these guys in front of him all, and he's beginning to do, uh, this this service, which he only does once, and he just does it this time. Moses uh, washes Aaron and his sons. Now, um, what do you think he means by that? Do you think he just is it a ceremonial washing? Do you think the text doesn't say? It's not like he probably said, "Okay, boys, in front of absolutely everyone, 
strip off. Let's hop into the sauna it's, and, uh, and sweat it all out. Um, it's a, the first thing that is done in the presence of the Lord or before coming to the Lord is a ceremonial washing with water. Now, it's a just it must be like a mikvah, right? You'd have to be washed from the top to the bottom, surely. If, 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 it's, a, if it's a Jewish mikvah, yes. Um, but the, the, in, if, if people do a mikveh, Moses actually doesn't touch them. Yeah. So maybe, this might be something. Water on them, yeah. Maybe he was just there watching them. Could be. And, yeah. What if he? It could be. Remember, Jesus washes the disciples' feet as well. There, there seems to be this process of some sort of washing physically before going on into the next stage of holiness. Wasn't the culture to wash their feet, though, because you guys were running around in sandals back in that day in Jerusalem? You guys. Uh, yeah, we were, we were, we're still doing we're still, that. Still do. <laughs> but in, before the physical washing, Lord Jesus says, I've washed you with my word. Mm. And then you're, you're all clean, and so it's just we wash each other's feet now as believers, yeah. because we have been washed through the Word of God. Surely this this is something slightly different, because he, here Moses is going to clean them. He must have covered them with water somehow. He wouldn't have just washed their feet, because this is they were about to be consecrated as the high priest and the, and the attendees, right? Yeah. And I, 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 I don't know. It could be. I mean, Pontius Pilate washed his hands. Ceremonial use of water in front of as like a ceremony has a lot of meaning and impact and power. Obviously, in the Jewish world, we've got the full mikveh as well. We're not going to deny that, that prior to going to the temple, you would have to have a mikveh, uh, a baptism. And um, John the Baptist preaches that. Uh, Jesus' disciples also baptized, remember, according to the text. So lots of people are doing it. Interestingly, Moses gathers everybody together and in, in a nice pattern that he's demonstrating in front of the elders, he says, okay, before we even start consecrating absolutely everything, I'm going to, we, we wash some humans. And Think um, about how much it costs to wash somebody in the desert. Ah, yeah, that's also, yeah. An expensive process, you know, as well. Probably not something cheap. That reminds me of the movie that just came out. Uh, did anyone see the movie Dune? They're on this desert planet, and the the greeting, the way they people would greet each other, is they would spit on the ground in front of each other. And, people, and you know, initially, the first guy who who walks up and gets spat at, he goes, "Well, that's pretty rude." And the other guy says, "Thank you for sharing your water with me." You know, and uh, so there's it is interesting, it's probably quite an expensive process to start with. That will save us, yeah. yeah. Uh, Aaron, in terms of washing, I think it might be quite plausible to suggest that maybe Moses poured water over Aaron's hands, or them over his feet, or maybe pour them over his head, you know, because you have this touching with blood on parts of the body which is representative of the whole or significant in a larger way than just the tiny bit it touched. Yeah. So I think you could have this idea of washing selective, you know, exposed parts of your body, like your hands and the feet, yep. having a greater symbolism than just those yep. parts of your body. Yep. There's expensive water, valuable cleansing, all kinds of uh, different themes that come up. That's there. And then once they've been uh, washed, Moses clothes them. 
and he begins to dress them in this interesting clothing that we we, we see. A um, couple of interesting pictures. The head priest is looking very colourful. The, the the little the the, the Levites, the, the little guys, not so colourful. Um, Before you move on to that ephod, why is it called a curious girdle of the ephod? What's the Hebrew for the curious there? Is it a strange girdle? What is it trying to say about the girdle? It had. It was a way of communicating with God or receiving information from God, eh, guys? That's the Urim and Thummim. Yeah. Yeah, in verse 7, half towards the end, it says, um, and girded him with a curious girdle of the ephod. What does it say in Hebrew? It says it's girded him with the band of the ephod and adorned him with it. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't see what, what translation are you reading? King James. Yes. <laughs> they, they may have um they, they may be thinking back to their own kings <laughs> and what he's wearing um mordecai do you have a picture of the ephod with you oh again yeah you put what's the ephod up i have one oh you do mm -hmm. so what's the ephod then ah this is the breastplate. Here, okay within the ephod within the within this breastplate uh within the ephod is a a breastplate and the breastplate has something else but the ephod is some sort of um um either apron or jacket or something so the ephod is the colorful part which is the torso yeah. and, and halfway down 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 to the knees the gemstones are part of the breastplate the breastplate which we will now which we will now talk about so you get this you get this layers upon layers and then this this um so it's not just you wear one thing and then that's all. There's there's a variety of different elements, and they all seem to ha have a little detail in the in the in sacred scripture. And then we put a, a breastplate, but only on the high priest, and it contains this thing called the urim and the thummim. So just literally based on the text, what do we know about the urim and thummim? Not much. So what do we know according to tradition? So, Moti, you, you're the Jewish uh, guy. What, what, what have you guys learned? First of all, according to the Rambam, the Urim and Tumim was the, one of the stones of the breastplate. And as you know, Urim means the light, and the Turim, basically Tamim, is completeness. The two stones had the secret name of God written on them. Mm. And according to the Rambam, if the Kohen Gadol read in the proper order, these letters presented him the complete and true answers to the questions he asked. And what happened to them? The Urim and Tumim were lost after the destruction of the first temple. So we don't have, we don't have them anymore. The second temple, Kohen Gadol, including the Caiaphas, did not have them. So maybe that's why he didn't or couldn't realize the Messiah could have asked God by using them. It's interesting in Numbers 27, verse 21, he says, and he will stand before Eliezer the priest who will ask counsel for him after the judgment of Urim before the Lord. Mm -hmm. At the word they will go out. So it seemed to be that these Urim and Thurim would, they would ask a question to the Lord and, and these Urim and Thurim would light up or something like that as a response. Uh Correct. It's not magic. It's some form of communication device. But what's the question that this whole episode begs? Why doesn't God talk directly? 
because he's already doing it. Yeah. Like, what is it that if God is already talking to Moshe, he's already talking to Avram, you know, he's already talking to Yaakov, but, you know, he can give dreams and visions. All of a sudden, there's this switch where we go, got a new plan, okay, um, new plan, Aaron the high priest, okay, um, bit, of a, bit of a loser, actually, going to go into idol worship, but don't worry, I'll forgive him. Um, and then he's going to have this special breastplate. Uh, and you go, interesting, what... I don't know if we can actually answer the question other than to say it's mystical, it's a mystery, it's part of God's um, uh, way of, of working in the world, and, uh, and maybe we just contemplate the, this, this mystery. But if you guys got any other ideas, I would love to hear what you have to say. The one thing that is, is clear to me is that at least the, the Urim and Thummim outlasted Moses, and it lasted for multiple generations. So okay. no one ever spoke to God face to face as Moses did. But there was a tiny encapsulation of the ability to get a direct answer that, that the, the Kohen Gadol was, was given the authority to use. Okay, so that's an, that's an interesting thing, that the Urim and Thurim outlast mm -hmm. Moses. So perhaps God has to set up a process for when his hero uh, leaves the scene. It's an interesting thing for him to do that. Okay. Uh, Moti and then and then um, Shimshon. Yeah, I mean, if you read Numbers twelve, we can clearly see that God says that He speaks to prophets in visions and dreams, but He spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu face to face or mass to mass. So maybe that's why they needed a, a communication device to speak with them because <laughs> they were Moshe Rabbeinu. The Urim and Thummim um, they, they became a very essential part of the. Um, communication system of the religious system on early um, Jewish history. You could remember when um, God will not speak to Saul. He said, not even by the Urim or the Turim or by prophets, you know. And, um, and many times David wants to inquire from God. He would call Abiata and he would say, um, consult the Urim and the Turim and what we should do. Um, should we remain here or should we go to Hebron or, you know, things like that. So it, 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 it's, um, it's uh, just like you said, it's mystical. But what I want to bring out there is that um, over time it became, um, of course, corrupted. And many traditions in Africa, in African religious, um, traditional religion, were using that. Um, they have this um, chief priest that has some stones and cowries, and they will speak some things and throw it on the floor. And depending on the, the sign it gives the priests and the communication, and they will use it to translate to the people. So we, we, we see that um, kind of um, corruption of uh, what yeah, was yeah. Um, the Turim and the Turim being used in, um, in traditional African religion. You know, that's interesting, um, because when I went to Taiwan, in Taipei, at the time, you know, my, my mother's family, they're all Buddhists, and they have these two moon-shaped um, Oh, wooden like and they throw it on the floor and it depending on the direction like if, it, if they're facing inwards or outwards or however they face that's they ask a question and that's like the response so it is amazing how that did get corrupted well but that's interesting you guys because there is a proverb that says every roll of the dice comes from the lord so even in the new testament they're casting lots to decide things and stuff so you know down through history we've always wanted to know the mind of god or what he wants from us right that's it. That's, I'm off to the casino, people. I'm off to the casino. Got a beautiful <laughs> verse to prove it. 
that they can't like the casting of lots for the for the disciple that was going to take over the place of Judas. It wasn't something that the Lord had really wanted to do. It wasn't that more of a human thing. Why do you say that? Um, I don't think that the I'm, I'm just remember Aaron. Well, you talked about just, that. Let's just say time. that what we find in the Bible is a record of what happened. It's not. It's it's not always a gospel. What what occurs in Acts isn't a gospel. Just because a group of disciples got lots to choose the next leader is not a proof text to say this is how you choose your leaders. You choose your leaders. <laughs> so, no, no, people. There are a few denominations, but I'm going to tell you they're really, really scarce. Most people who would like to choose their shepherds require them to have done studies language skills, have the ability to teach, demonstrate a gift from the Lord uh, to actually hold office. Um, we call these things, you know, uh, Bible colleges, universities or formation tracks. Um, we don't just roll some dice and go, uh, never. No, Sunday, that'd be great, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in this case, there was more than one qualified person because it was men that were full of the spirit. So we know that there was sure. more than one option. Yes. It wasn't that they were denying all those obvious. No, no, things. no, Sharon. We're not. We're not arguing what occurred in the text. What we're saying is, it's not a proof text. But this is how you actually do stuff for the rest of your natural life. Um, it's a. Uh, it's. It's. It's a thing that occurred. So, Vita, you've actually, oh, David, you've got a hand raised and been patient. It's just in Deuteronomy 33, verses 8, um, when Moses is blessing all the different tribes, he says yeah. very clearly of Levi, he says, Let the Thuman and Uman be with thy holy one, whom thou dost prove of Massa. And so we see clearly that with, with Messiah coming, that this whatever the Uman and Thuman is representing actually is, well, Jesus is the embody, embodiment, is the wrong word, but you know what I mean, of, of whatever that human and human were doing. There's no Deuteronomy 38. Deuteronomy 33 verse 8 33. describes the human and human as being part of the heritage and, and control of Levi. What we notice later in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, in the, is that prophets don't use the human and human to receive messages from the Lord or oracles. And uh, so it's still, it's not the only communication device. It's a communication device. It was attached to the tabernacle and as part of a worship structure. Exactly how it was used, we don't, we don't have uh, a clear indication of who had access to ask this question. Was it only relegated to the elite? Is it something that the kings and the rulers did when they wanted to? To consult, yeah, or was it something that anybody could do? Like, I'm, I'm about to have a business deal. Should I buy stocks or shares? Let me go consult the priest. When the uh, 12th disciple was selected, Matthias, I think, uh, when, they, when they drew the lots, right, the Holy Spirit confirmed it. So it's not something that is, that is of man. It's actually something of God. Yes, I'm not saying it wasn't. And what I'm just saying is that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that's not the proof text for this is how we now engage in selection of new, new, new leadership. But you go by the spirit for sure.
Uh, yes, and we also go by the university degrees. You know, it's like we don't just say to somebody, the spirit told me you're now my shepherd. That's not normally how we choose them. But Aaron, people could have three degrees and not not have a personal relationship with God. Oh, that, that I agree with you totally as well. Um, but what the, the point is, we don't just, Sharon, please listen to my words. No just one said that. Say, that uh, because of because I've rolled the dice because the Lord has said, no you are one now the boss. Okay. I'll put in words yeah. in our mouth. Love you. <laughs> Can I just give one thought on this to do with Acts chapter one and the, the drawing lots? I think for for me actually, what this does is signals one thing to those people who are awake and looking for these things. There was a list of things that were not present in the second temple. And one of them was the Urim and Thummim, and one was the fire of God never fell on the altar. And they didn't have the prophetic voice, they didn't have the Ark of the Covenant, so on. And Acts chapter 1 starts with casting lots. You think, this should get your attention to say, oh, something's happening here. And then the really big hint comes shortly afterwards when the fire fell from heaven, but not on the altar. It fell on 120 people. Yes. Uh, and so it's, it's a hint to say... Amen. Pay attention. Something's happening here. Wait and see. Yes, because the last time lots were mentioned in the Bible, they're in a negative context. Yeah. So here they're using a positive context. So it's a completely rewriting of what of what's going on. Um, excellent, Neville. Brilliant. Okay, so we have this communication device, and it's given into the hands of Aaron. And then we get the rest of his um, clothing, which apparently includes the very name of God, um, listed on his on his forehead. In terms of what clothing we should or shouldn't wear as shepherds today, uh, I don't know if it can speak into that per se, other than to say there really isn't a biblical text that says all shepherds of God should wear the following clothing. Okay. Um, what I what I think you probably shouldn't wear is uh, shorts and a t-shirt. Okay. Um, uh, I think I think you should dress holy. This would be my opinion, and I'm willing to argue anybody for it. But uh, for Moses and for the the, the the immediate tabernacle of heaven of God in amongst the people, they would have looked a certain way, dressed a certain way, acted a certain way, and people would appreciate them because of the way that they looked. Interestingly, the clothing that Moses is about to put on them, he's going to sprinkle it with blood. Not exactly probably um, the smartest thing. I'm sure the wives probably complained bitterly after this, um, going, really, you want me to wash that out? Not going to do it. You can you can work, walk around like that the rest of the time in the desert. It's dusty anyway. Um, but it's, uh, it's just part of their, part of their, uh, part of their clothing before the Lord. So uh, we get the anointing oil. Um, where they get the anointing oil from, how they consecrate it, there is just such a thing, and we, which is still in use to the church today we, and in the uh, Jewish world, although not as much, but it is, it is around. And, um, and we begin, the first thing we do is we start anointing things. We anoint the tent and uh, the consecrated items, and we sprinkle it on the altar, and we consecrate that. And, uh, and then we pour some of the anointing oil on Aaron, like we get that psalm, the oil is running down his beard. So we can probably assume it wasn't just a little dab. Okay? It was probably a good, a good size portion and uh, consecrates him. And, uh, and then 
Moses does the same with everybody else and, uh, and anoints their clothing as well. Well, later on, he's going to say that he makes an atonement for it. And uh, I know that we haven't got a lot of time for it, but why do you think an object needs to be atoned for? Any ideas? This will be our last little discussion. Um, Just purify everything, right? What's the difference between consecration, anointing, and atonement? Any idea? Okay, Shimshan, you've got an idea? Right. Um, I think um, one of the reasons is that um, uncleanness is transferred to objects, and it can end up in the sanctuary and the the sanctuary. And so everything is um, purified. Everything is um, to be atoned for so that it can become holy. And um, just like we mentioned, that from the name, everything attached to the name of God is holy. The mm. people are holy, the, 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 the instruments of worship are holy, and even the name is holy. So everything must be holy. Yep. Uh, Tom? Because of the fall. It wasn't just man, but the whole planet. Okay. All right. So the fall, okay, uh, spilled over and actually affected creation. So even creation, if you want to use it for the Lord, has to initially be re-bought re back, re atoned for, re-consecrated for. Okay, good, good point. David? Yes, Aaron, I, I'm wondering if it also doesn't go down to the fact that if something unholy touches it, it makes it unholy, right? So you would have to presume that that thing is not holy to begin with. So, so you have to make it holy. Okay. You can't presume that something is holy, right? Okay, that's, that's a good question. You can't assume that the thing immediately in front of you is holy. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Unless, of course, it directly came from heaven, and you could probably assume oh, that. Oh, yes, yes. But, yeah, because obviously the tent is put together by fabric, and everybody would see the process start from, from A to B, and, and, all, and all the utensils have been hammered out and smashed out. Yeah, so I can see that um, they might look the same as any other thing that that has or, or uh, has been made yeah so then you want to make sure that this is now we can use different words like dedicated or whatever but whatever word we use at some point we're still stuck with this interesting word what does it mean to atone for an inanimate object because normally we have let's all admit that when when we use the word atonement we usually use it in reference to a human being and ourselves our spirits as but this 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 chapter here brings in this interesting thing, which says, um, "and uh, and he shall atone for the tabernacle." And you're like, what does that mean? Um, and uh, and I don't know if we know the answer per se, other than it's an interesting thing for us to ponder, because there is a difference in the way Leviticus is using the words atonement and forgiveness. Remember, in our previous chapters, that the process of uh, bringing an offering. <coughs> Was Aaron, Aaron, can I ask a question right, right in here? Isn't it some way that I'm going to ask you now because I can't quite remember? Is if something is unholy and you touch it, you become unholy, right? Correct, that's right. And then if you, if you are holy, does it make you holy? Because I was, I was just thinking that uh, every any article out there is always going to be connected to the unholy, to somebody said just now to the fallen world, right? Right. So, so surely this is the idea that we have to keep consecrating. This is until Lord Jesus comes, of course. But uh, the idea is is to keep making it holy because the world is always going to influence it from its fallen state. Is an unholy. Uh, uh, if that makes any sense. Yes, polluting. 
Sure. Um, yes, I, I understand that completely, that um, because uh, sin is contagious and holiness is contagious, they're both, yeah. they both operate in a contagious way and they can affect each other, um, then sinful humans walk into a church, consecrate a building to worship the Lord, do we not? And usually yeah, yeah. the first thing we do is we, we say, you know, sometimes we go through the act of confession. Yes. I'm now standing in front of a holy God. Probably should get right with him before I do anything else, et cetera, okay. et cetera. But <clears throat> has, has that then deconsecrated the church? Because normally when we build a holy building, we usually only have one dedication service. We never do it again. Um, I don't think, Mo I don't know if Moses did this uh, ceremony ever again. He did, does it here. And he atones for the tabernacle and the altar, but I don't think he ever does it again. I think the, the altar just begins it. And what's so interesting what in Leviticus is in the next chapter, fire from heaven, which is what Neville had mentioned in the first temple, fire from heaven comes down, and that's what that's the fire that we as humans continue to keep burning forever, yeah. which is an interesting, interesting relationship between heaven and earth. God yes. starts something. And then we just keep it going, which is a nice thought. So it's interesting if you look up the dictionary definition of, of atonement, right? It's reparation for a wrong or injury or reparation or expiation for sin. So I know that's what definitions say, but they're not the Bible. No, no, and and, and let, let's all remember that just because we can pick up a book and make it look at definition, sometimes we have to be honest that sometimes we go, that's actually not quite right. And um, and I've got a feeling that sometimes when, when we come, when some of the language that we use in our Christian speak sometimes misses the actual intention of what the Hebrew text is saying. Uh, I'm, I'm confessing right now. I don't 100% know why we have to atone for an altar, but I'm prepared to continue to wrestle with it to learn. However, I don't think tonight is the, the way we're going to do it, but we are going to have to have a little discussion on the difference between atonement and Forgiveness eventually. Aaron, just one thing is that when we get to chapter 16, talking mm -hmm. about the Day of Atonement, Ooh. there's a sense in which it has to happen once a year. There's a kind of resetting of the status of people. Right. In that, and so the, and this happens with the things, you know, the, the, the altars and, and so on. So there Good is point. Excellent point. Year on year. Yep. Excellent point. So there is this degradation of the holiness almost through use. Isn't that interesting? Mm. Um, mm. Through contact with unholy people. Contact with unholy people. Tom, you're up. There, there was the same idea. It's, it's, they were altars, intent of meeting. Everything is constructed by humans. The humans are fallen. They have sin. The sin then is transferred to the inanimate objects. So it begs the question as... Aaron, in one of your previous discussions, you talked about how man can corrupt the planet. And so it's interesting that corruption and sin is not just a human thing. Yeah. Corruption and sin affects all of creation. Yeah. Universally. So yeah. It's, it's kind of a bigger picture than we typically think about sin. Uh, yeah, very good point. We need to perhaps widen our, under, our view of, uh, of the corruption on the planet and sin on the planet. Nice. Kate, you're up. We were talking about holy water and, and washing. And 
I mean, I was raised as a Catholic, so I remember before you got into church, every church would have holy water in the porch, which you would touch and you would cross yourself with that holy water. And that was to cleanse you, to cleanse yourself before you entered the church. And is that something like the symbolism of the, of the water that you've been talking about? And, and it's a protection against the evil. That's as I saw it as a child. You, you were cleansing yourself, making yourself holy and dispersing the evil. Yes, I just want to just to, to note that um, a lot of the traditions within the Catholic and Orthodox churches actually have yeah. their roots steeped in um, Jewish Hebraic uh, yeah. thinking. Yeah. And so prior, as part of the initial process of walking into a holy place or engaging in a holy uh, form of worship, the first thing you did was wash with water. So in the yeah. Catholic tradition, it was by our day and age, it's a dipping of the finger and and uh, making the sign of the cross. But it is interesting that they're using water. Now, if we if we actually ask the average Catholic, why do you do this? They probably won't say, oh, because I got the idea from the tabernacle, you know. But um, it, it but you often see that hint is still still alive and well. Uh, all you do is open your eyes and, and have a little look, and it's there. Roddy, what you got? I think we're all saying the same thing. This um, atonement is, before you can come before the Lord to ask for forgiveness, you need to be clean. So this, this atonement yeah. is to put you in a position to be able to be forgiven of sin. I'm going back to where the priest atones, and then you give your sacrifice. So I think it's just part of the process before you can actually come before the Lord. Absolutely. I agree. And Aaron, when, when I read verse 15 uh, in Leviticus 8, uh, hold on, it says here, now I'm going to try and work the English on this one. It says, poured the blood at the bottom of the altar and sanctified it to make reconciliation upon it or atonement upon it, right? Surely what's happening here is, is that it's being prepared to do the sacrifice on top. It's not actually atoning for the altar. It's preparing for the atonement for the sacrifice. They sanctifying the altar for it to be used for to be, atonement. To be yes. used for atonement. Is that not the, the, the implication here? My oh, footnote says covering. Okay. What's the Hebrew word? Covering. Lechapé is to cover. Lechapé, that's right. Yeah. yeah. And then we've got to remember, to cover and, 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 and forgive are two different things. Yeshua doesn't die at Yom Kippur. No. Right? Oh, He's cool. the Passover offering. Anyway, we'll take um, Teresa at London. Finish us off. How's that? You know, uh, oh, oh my goodness! Give us the words of Churchill Finish once you again. Off completely. Yeah. I just wanted to add to what Kate said. I remember the priest walking around the church. I think probably at Easter, and it could have been renewal of that baptismal vows, but it might have been wider than that. And he would walk around sprinkling yes. the people with water. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, I do remember that very clearly. And there was certainly a great emphasis on holiness and being set apart and yes. in objects and as people. Big focus. Aaron? Yeah, Liz? In high church practice, which is the same as Roman Catholic practice, at the Easter ceremonies, um, the baptism font and the altar are all blessed. Uh, and they're usually done with the Easter candle for the baptismal font, and it is put down three times. Ah, that's right. Yeah, I forgot that. Hmm. Yes, we still actually did do some of these practices. Yes. And um, 
And I, I think, though, for us, when we do them, we really probably should explain them to the congregation <laughs> so that we actually can have a sense of meaning and awe and wonder that there is uh, into the realm of heaven. God is a holy God. And when we do have to approach him and talk to him and love him and, and obey his commands, we don't just do so uh, in a normal fashion. We, we, we talk to him in an abnormal fashion. We talk to him through an act of prayer. Okay? And, uh, uh, and uh, we serve him in a, in a, in a different way. Um, he's he's unlike any other king and uh, and 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 so we we have to treat him in a, in a different way and i think that one of the things that comes through in these verses in these passages we're reading is the 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 idea of just how holy god is and how how everything about him is holy but that holy isn't something that he keeps which i always find he shares this with the people he brings the elders together so you tell everybody what we're seeing Everybody here is going to have access to this altar. Everyone's going to be able to come and see these priests. Everyone's going to be able to bring their offerings and, and come and, and rejoice and stand before the Lord. And they're going to be special for you. They're not going to just be stumped, uh, a normal uh, dude who's just standing there in a corner we picked up on, you know, on Friday because he, he was out of a job. No, these guys are set apart for service to you as well they are they are going to be trained they are going to be able to sing and lead you in worship they're going to teach you the words of the lord they're going to give you proper sermons not just rubbish they're going to you know uh, uh help you uh, hear the voice of heaven you've got a really deep question you go see that guy and you'll get the answer through um these little magical lights um there is there is a way to communicate to the divine uh which is and all of that is actually really quite special and all of that exists in amongst our community today. Well, it should. You know, we should all be engaged in, in wanting to bring people into the very real presence of the Lord. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube, Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King. <laughs>